So, from the people that did the homework, right, went out and introduced somebody, anybody have a cool experience with them? A new experience that they never had? All of it was new. I've never had that experience before or again. I've met five or six different people, and they're all very glad. We had eye contact, and they all ended up smiling. Nice. Not AA people. Not AA. You did it with non-AA people. A awesome. A few AAs in here. Right. And what did you end up learning from that exercise? The human touch transfers energy like I had an experience with my father. Cool. Manish. Would you share your experience with the new person today? <clears throat> Come on up here. Come on, we're gonna bring you up to the front of the class. Gotta be you're not you're too far away to get on the speaker, so that, that way we can get on the mic. Because we're recording it. Recording? Yeah, absolutely. Well then I have to then I okay. Uh, so yeah, so I'm visiting here from Berkeley, California. I don't know many people, I know Dave, I know JR. But then uh, I just So who are you by the way? My name is Manish. And you are a alcoholic. What kind of alcoholic? A chronic alcoholic. You're a recovered alcoholic. There we go. All right. So uh, anyways, I, I, I'm just gonna share this short because like I don't know many people and I was at I was at lunch, I didn't know anybody to go out for lunch with, I was feeling sorry for myself, and I landed up in uh, the store in Main Street on Plaza Rail, just like to have a smoothie there. And I started talking to the person, uh, and then and she was like, oh, what are you here for? I was like, oh, I'm just here for uh, like an event. What kind of event or workshop? What kind of workshop? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of spiritual workshop? A 12-step. What 12-step? I said, uh, AA. So you're a friend of Bill. <laughs> so is my husband. <laughs> and his, the husband is here now. So. <laughs> <laughs> Can you guys see the power of God working through people's lives? That's what I call a positive stone. You can throw negative stones and negatively affect people, or you can throw positive stones. And, and that's classic. Well done. Give that boy an A. <clears throat> cool. Does anybody have any questions from the sessions that we did so far? Before we jump into this. Okay. Does everybody have the... Uh, the uh, the link for for the uh, I'm to say, the URL to get the, to get all the data. Yes. Okay. So now I got to run forward. It'll get us back where we need to be. That's close. You know where the short form came from? It is prayer code for. Oh. Oh. Yeah, the the All right. Cool. What you guys need to know is uh, one of the things that I do, I, I learned from, uh, from doing a lot of big book workshops and stuff. When you get on the speaking circuit, people ask you to do, to work, do workshops. And I'm just a drunk among drunks. You know, there's nothing special about me. I put my pants on one leg at a time, same as everybody else. But one of the things I, I realized is a lot of the people that uh, they're on the speaking circuit, and it's not to knock them, but a lot of them are sharing experience that's 15 or 20 years old. They're not currently in the trenches. You know, and if you listen to their, their audios and stuff, 
when you hear their, their pitch, you know exactly what joke's coming, where it's coming, you know, et cetera. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, one, of the reason, one of the reasons I met, um, a lot of you were, were friends of Mark Houston's, one of the reasons I met Mark Houston was we were both on the speaking circuit and I got together and I tried to get a whole bunch of the guys that were on the circuit at the time. This is back in the early, I think it was early 90s. And said, you know what, guys, we need to, we're having a different kind of unique experience, and we need to get together and share inventory with each other and hold each other accountable so that we're sharing fresh experience. And Mark, to his credit, was one of the few guys that, that agreed to, to the task. And um, so he and I got together. We went through the, the 12 steps together. Uh, we swapped fifth steps. And right <coughs> immediately after that, we flew up to New York and did fellow, the first fellowship of the spirit that we did. And uh, I think it was 2000 or 2001. Uh, and I don't know about you guys, but when I listened to that, there was, there was magic there because we were both spiritually centered, we were both on fire, we were both really connected to the spirit at the time, and we'd been in the trenches carrying the message. So we had fresh information, things that, that are, was our current experience. And so I learned from that lesson. And so the rule that I personally use is, I use a 10 to one rule, that before I accept a workshop or whatever, I take 10 people through the work. So they have current fresh experience. And I write every January and every June, uh, for this workshop, um, uh, and it, I'll, get, I'll tell you the story in a, in a minute of what had occurred, but I had some current inventory. This inventory that I'm going to share with you is all of, well, yesterday was three days, so now it's all of four days old, you know. So it's, this is my current experience. And this isn't an example. This is real. This was what I wrote as the process. And I think there's no other easier way to show you what the process is than to actually show you the process. And... Uh, <clears throat> uh, what had occurred was uh, a friend of mine, it's actually a guy that I, that I formerly sponsored, uh, <clears throat> his, his wife was a chronic relapser and uh, she couldn't st seem to stay sober and from January till June she spent the entire time in various rehabs. <clears throat> she got s claimed that she was sober, got released from a halfway house, she moved back home. <clears throat> in the middle of that process, uh, I parted ways with this guy because he was so codependent and I wasn't being effective in being able to help him. I said, you know, there's somebody, somebody else can help you. I can't, uh, obviously. And uh, uh, he's working out here in California and he's working for, I don't know, LA Power and Light or something. And he's got a camera in his living room and he's looking on the camera and he sees his autistic son, special needs son, wandering around the living room. And that's not normal. So he starts calling the house. Nobody answers the phone. He calls the cops. They break in through the back door and they find her uh, overdosed naked in the bathroom. She's alive, thank God. And uh, it started a whole ball rolling. Well, because my, my buddy Chuck hadn't really, he'd gotten a new sponsor, but in name only. Anybody ever done that? You know, uh, he, he wasn't really working with him near as I could tell. And uh, so the first phone call he called was, you know, he came home to mama. He called me and said, hey, what do I do? And so I started giving him some information and coaching him through it. And the more I heard him share with me what was going on and his reactions to it, the more uh, my codependency started to get triggered because I realized I'm not really being effective here. I got him through the initial crisis. Uh, but one of the things that I, that I preach uh, is that if you're going to be effective as a sponsor, you damn well better be going to Al-Anon because you're, you will start to want their sobriety more than they do. And <clears throat> that started to come up for me. And so what it culminated in was me sending, uh, I spent about an hour, I was in, in South America at the time, I was down in Buenos Aires, and I'm texting back and forth with him because you know he, he was kind of getting out of control. Could somebody go unlock the back door and let them in? I'll get 
Thanks, Chair. <clears throat> so, um, at the end of the text message, I realized this is really codependent. This is out of control. I'm, I'm not being effective to him. So I, I said, listen, buddy. I said, here's the things that this woman has cost you this year. And I started listing them. You know, she's threatened you. She's threatened me. She's threatened the life of your son on multiple occasions. I mean, here's an autistic kid who's brilliant. He's literally a genius. You know, and there's loaded syringes full of cocaine floating around the house. And he's watching mom shoot up. If all he has to do is mimic that behavior and he's dead. You know, it would kill him. His specialty is security, corporate security. He does the corporate security for banks to make sure that people can't hack into the banks. So he goes through like five background checks a year. No exaggeration. His, his job needs to be absolutely secure. And he has to be pristine as far as his background. And now the police have been called to his house. CPS has been reported by the police. So now she's threatened his career. He's threatened his future. She's threatened his sobriety. There's all these things. I listed them all and I said, I can't help you, bud. You know, somebody else may be able to help you. But when it comes to talking about your wife, I got to step aside and I can't have this conversation because it's having a negative effect on me. And so I wrote some inventory in the process. I was mad at her. I was mad at him, and then I realized when I was writing the inventory, I wasn't mad at him, I was mad at codependency, the disease of codependency. <clears throat> and in the middle of this, I have a son who's got some special things going on with him. He has Lyme disease, and it's left him with some, some neurological stuff that goes on. So one of the things, he's, he's also a genius. So when you get up into that level of brain power, you know, they tend to not be concerned about anything but themselves, you know, and they don't understand the effect they have on you. And um, so, like, he'll just show up unannounced and say, what's for dinner, you know? And we're like, well, we weren't planning on you for dinner, you know? And so we have to stop, and then we make dinner, and then he'll eat, and then he'll immediately go, all right, I'm going to my, back to my apartment. He'll get in the car and leave. And you're like, well, that was rude. What the hell was that? Or he'll come walking in and drop his, his laundry, and he expect his mother just to get it done. Like, an hour later, he's going, is my laundry done yet? I mean, he's not being malicious. That's just part of what's going on with him. So. I wrote about his selfishness. And <clears throat> because I had written about Chuck and his family, I went to him and I said, hey, can I use your per permission to use some of this information? And <clears throat> this is what he, he did. He said, yes, I, you can absolutely, if you think one person will be helped, of course you can use the story. He said, uh, by all means, go right ahead, but I have two requests. He said, number one, please remind everybody that there's a good but very sick woman uh, underneath whatever you had to write because I didn't tell him what I wrote about I just said I wrote about your wife and he said the second thing he said uh, please ask everybody to pray for us because we can use all the help we can get so I put at the bottom there please pray for Chuck all right as as we go through this so you can see <clears throat> all right so we already covered the short form of of what does it look like all right so here's what I wrote <clears throat> and I color-coded them for you anal people you'll understand why I'm doing what I'm doing <clears throat> all right so uh, Chuck's wife's name is so is resentment number one and resentment number two. Codependency was resentment number three and resentment number four. Now, when I write these inventories, I don't start out with a short form. I take a blank piece of paper and a pencil and I say, okay, God, show me who I'm angry at. I say a prayer and then I write, start writing who am I pissed off at. And what came out on that paper was Chuck. When I sat with it a little bit further, I realized it wasn't really Chuck. It was codependency that I was angry at. And so when I started writing why I was angry, I went to the next, le the next level. Oop, come on, baby. Click for me. Is my battery dead? There we go. Nope. 
Is it there? Yeah. Oops, I want one too many. That's why. Is my second column there? Nope. There we go. <clears throat> That's as big as she's going to get, right? Right. So uh, what I wrote for him was when she hurts Chuck. Because I love Chuck. And I love him like a sister. I mean, they're, they're like family. Um, but when she hurts Chuck, it pisses me off. Because to watch her selfishness hurt Chuck. Uh, when her addiction threatens the greatest little kid he's awesome uh but he's got his handicap you know and her addiction is threatening literally physically threatening his life codependency when it deludes people into thinking they are helping when then actually they are hurting it through their enabling i cannot stand to watch people do that you know when it's time for tough love and they continue to enable people they're literally killing people with kindness uh jr and i were talking about that at, at lunch today people are killing people with kindness you know, when somebody goes out and relapses and they come back in day, everybody's like, oh, we're so glad to see you. Oh, how you doing? Oh, you poor thing. No, that's not how we treat them. Yes, we're glad to see you come on in. Are you ready to do the work now? If not, there's the door. Go drink. That's our message. We, we play tough love. If you want to wipe their nose and wipe their butts, you're going to probably bury them. You know, you might as well sign up on the sheet to be a pole bearer at their funeral. You know, there's a time for loving and there's a time for being a hard ass. You know, and I kind of miss the old days. You know, uh, I, I don't know if I share this with the group, but I can vividly remember my, did I tell you about my sponsor? I'd, I'd sit in the front row next to the drunk and he'd sit next to me. And I'd go to raise my hand, he'd yank my arm down. I'd be like, what's up? You know, and finally when I was able to raise my hand, he'd go, what are you gonna share? You know, don't spread your disease in here. You know, he hurt my feeling, but he was true. He was, you know, he knew that I was capable of spreading the disease. They wouldn't let you spread the disease in the old days. They'd call you out on that. Now, if, if you go into A, now we're politically correct, and you call somebody out with love and you're spot on, people start to alienate you. Like, man, you're really a hard ass. How could you talk to people that way? It's because I love them enough not to kill them, you know? But I digress, right? <clears throat> so that's my column two, right? Then I go through column, th did I get it? Column three, and I filled out column three, all color coded, so you can get to see them, all right? <clears throat> For resentments there are six areas those are big resentments you know for the codependency and for my son those were seven areas that's a monster I got to get that stuff off my chest or I'm gonna lose my mind you know because when I'm feeling that angry I'm capable of doing just about anything that's like a burning rage all right <clears throat> so I wanted you to see columns one two and three when you get to column three, I used to do something called Theodore the Lie, which you're about to experience. And because JR asked me to do it, you're going to see it. <clears throat> and I think I talked about this earlier this morning. I stopped doing Theodore the Lie about, gosh, probably almost 20 years ago. Because what I found was it's a lot of fun. And we have a great time. And everybody laughs hysterically. And we all, we all do this. They have the voices in our heads. Theodore the Lie can be a tremendous amount of fun. But the key is you can't get caught in Theodore the Lie. A lot of people will get in there and they start to try understand the characters and the voices they're hearing in their head and they're naming the characters and they're doing all that stuff and they never move on to the forgiveness and they never move on to column four and finish the inventory. They stop doing the work at column three and then they move on and they miss the whole purpose. If you don't get to forgiveness, like I said earlier, forgiveness is 80% of why we write resentment inventory, which is the next section, right? And then you gotta get to column four to see where you've harmed people and to uncover the fears because the fears are what trigger all of your character <clears throat> defects. Every character defect that you have comes from a fear. 
So it's critically important you get to the fears, the character defects, why you, you did what you did, and who you harmed, and most importantly, you're dead in the water unless you have forgiveness. So for Theater of the Lie, right, it comes from a book by Scott Peck called People of the Lie. And when he wrote the book People of the Lie, it's an adaptation from that. <clears throat> and it's funny because Mark was doing Theater of the Lie and I was doing Theater of the Lie before we'd ever met with each other. And we got together and he did Theater of the Lie differently. He would pick people out of the audience and get them to come up to represent the various you know, people in your head. You know? And I call it the itty bitty shitty committee. You know, is the chatter of a thousand monkeys that you got going on in there. And <clears throat> one of the things that I learned is if you can identify the voice, you learn to recognize the voice. And if you can recognize the voice, anytime I hear that voice go off and I'm conscious awake enough to understand that I'm hearing a theater of the live voice, I slam on the brakes and I go, wait a minute, if I'm hearing that, by definition, I've disconnected from God. Remember my vacuum analogy? I've reached the end of the cord and it's unplugged from the wall and I wasn't even aware of it. But now all of a sudden the chatter is starting and I'm listening to the chatter instead of listening to my heart. And I slam on the brakes and I go, whoa, wait a minute. That was the judge or that was the jury or the, you know, that was the banker. Slam on the brakes and I go, okay, now I can go connect to God before I do any damage. Does that make sense? That's why it's a valuable tool. Instead of doing theater of the lie, I teach it a different way now to the guys that I sponsor. But for you guys today, I'm going to give you the the full-blown version of Theater of the Lie. Here's my analogy. The purpose of Theater Lie characters today, I tell the car wreck analogy for the guys that I work with now. <clears throat> I'm like, you know, it's almost like an alcoholic. We wake up in the bottom of a gulch and the car is on fire and we're kind of, we come to, we crawl out of the wreckage, you know, scratch your back on the windshield as you crawl through the hole and you're standing at the bottom of the, of the gully and you're going, how the hell did I get here? <clears throat> That's early recovery, right? It's early sobriety. You know, it's a smoking wreck and you're going, what happened? We don't know. After a while, once you've been in, the, in recovery for a while, hopefully you should see, and you're at the bottom of a gully. So you start climbing up the hill because you got to get some help, right? So you climb up to the top of the gully and you got to step over a guardrail and you realize, wait a minute, I crashed through a guardrail. Why didn't I see the guardrail? You know, that's once you've been had a few of the disciplines and you've been taught and you're sober about 30 days, you should have a guardrail that should have protected you before you ended up at the bottom of the gulch. Right? And then you, you start walking towards town and you realize that the road curves and as you're walking by, you pick up a rock because you're kind of pissed off and you throw it at the back of a sign and you walk by, you look at the sign and it's a curve ahead. It says 25 mile an hour speed limit. Well, why didn't I see the curve warning sign? You know, that's sort of like when you got 90 days and you kind of get, you get cocky. And you know, anybody that's been driving for about 90 days, you start to speed a little bit and you're feeling a little bit comfortable in the car. And you, you know, I know it says 25, but let me see if I can do it at 35. And the next time you hit that same exact corner, you try it at 45 until you scare yourself and then you back off about 10 miles an hour. Am I the only one? <laughs> you know, well, that's how I learned how to drive. Well, it's the same thing in sobriety. So guys that are cocky and they got about 90 days, they should start paying attention to their road signs, right, as they're, as they're coming. <clears throat> then you back it up even further. Well, if you didn't see the road sign, it must have been you were distracted. Well, why weren't you awake into what you were doing, paying attention to what was going on? Well, because you get a full life in recovery, right? Somewhere between the two and the five years, you know, you get your system down, you work in the program, you got your sponsors, life gets good, you get a relationship, you get a new job, everything's firing on all cylinders. So what do you start knocking off? You start, no, I don't need to go to five meetings a week, let me go to four. You know, it's really more important to go home and do that project than for my boss. You know, that's the kind of the two to five year mark, right? You back it up even, even further, <clears throat> right? Uh, 
now you're making up for lost time because now all of a sudden you got this game, you got the program, life is full of good stuff, but now you're trying to make up for lost time. You realize how much money you wasted, your retirement fund shouldn't be where it is because you know you didn't you didn't pay attention, you're too busy drinking and drugging, <clears throat> you know, and so you start to get faster and faster, and you also start getting more distracted. You start missing things. You you're supposed to be at a meeting and you but you cram too much into the stream of life. So you're always late and you're just going, 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 going. Does that make sense? That's kind of the five to 10 year window, right? <clears throat> and if you survive into double digits, that's where we start to think of people as old timers. You know, they got double digit sobriety. They should have this thing wired. And when you're an old timer, you're supposed to be accountable to people. You're supposed to be calmer. You're not supposed to be running around with your hair on fire. <clears throat> you're, you know, you're supposed to have some wisdom. You're supposed to have learned some lessons as you're going through, you know. But at any point in your sobriety, any one of these stages can reemerge in your life, right? So I can start out my morning, do my prayer and meditation, and I'm Mr. Wise. I'm spiritually awake. And then five minutes later, I'm speeding because I'm late for my appointment. And, you know, I want to stop at Starbucks and get a cup of coffee before I get to the whatever it is, you know. And then, next, you know, I wake up and... Spiritually, I wake up in the, in the smoking wreckage going, how the hell did I get here? It's because I was asleep thinking that I was awake. Well, the characters that we're going to teach you in Theater of the Lie can help you. And from each one, there's a warning sign, you know. And it's, it's one of those deals that after I've screwed up, remember I told you last night when I told my story about going to my wife and she told me that I'd hurt her worse than any time in our marriage and I was like, 30 years sober at the time, right? After the pain of that subsided, I did what I call a postmortem. I go back and I pull it apart and say, why didn't I see it? What was I doing wrong? And I, I dig in that and look for the spiritual because underneath every pile of manure that we create in our lives, there's a diamond and it has value, tremendous value. You know, if the hope diamond was under a pile, pardon my language, but if it's under a pile of shit, I'm diving in there to get that sucker. You know, because it's the Hope Diamond. I'm going to clean that sucker up and polish it up and, and, you know, I'll disinfect it and myself too, you know, because it's got value. Well, it's the same thing. When you've got ashes around you, when you've been the tornado and there's wreckage, burning wreckage, you've already paid the price. Now let the dust settle and then go back and dig through the ashes and find the diamond. There's a jewel in the mud there someplace, right? So the, through the postmortems, I learn more road signs. You know, I'll give you an example of some of my road signs. Uh, for me, I was a bouncer for years. So when you're a bouncer, you never stand square to anybody. You always blade your body sideways because it gives you less of a target to hit, right? I don't know if you guys know this, but I wear my watch on my right hand. That to most people means I'm left-handed. I do that on purpose. From when I was a bouncer, I am right-handed. And so I want them to think this is my strong hand when in fact this is my strong hand. <laughs> it's a, it sometimes wakes them up when they find out when my strong hand is my strong hand, right? So <clears throat> if you square off to anybody, it's a sign of aggression. If I, when I just stood up, I started to loom over you people. That's a sign of position and power. I've just changed my position. So my dainty little wife could be in, in the house and she says something and I'm in my chair and I stand up, there's a road sign. I've just changed my elevation, right? I square off to her, there's another road sign. I feel the tension across my, my chest, there's another road sign. I feel the hair stand up on the back of my neck, there's another road sign. I raise the octave of my voice, there's another road sign. But I'm asleep to it all unless I'm watching. 
and with each one, there's a character. So she says something very innocent, but what I hear is not what she said, and I take offense, you know? <clears throat> Some character shows up, right? And it's, it's usually, let's call it the husband character, right? Because it's a wife talking to a husband, and I'm like, she didn't just say that, you know? I could have identified that as the husband voice and said, whoa, slam on the brakes, David, but no. Now the husband goes running to the judge, and the judge says, and he says, did you hear what she just said to me, right? And he's like, well, I can't make a ruling. So he goes to the jury, and the jury has a conversation. In the jury, there's a codependent. He voices and says, nobody should be treating you that way. You know, if she loved you, she wouldn't treat you that way. You know, and you start, you start getting this gang of characters, right? <clears throat> so what are, the, what are the characters? Well, I spent some time with this <clears throat> in my life. <clears throat> so I listed some characters for you, <clears throat> right? We got the judge. He judges everything. He sits behind the mahogany desk, bangs the gavel, and people like him shouldn't be <clears throat> roaming the streets. Lock him up. He's a jackass, right? <clears throat> the jury, they decide who's guilty or who's not guilty. There's the executioner who carries the sentence out proposed by the judge. There's the banker. That's the financial person. Like when your, when your husband or your wife comes to you and they want to buy a new couch, and you say, well, how much is it? And they say, it's 3500 bucks. The accountant shows up really quick and he goes, 3500 bucks? You know, there's only 150 bucks in the savings account. Well, how do you plan on paying for that, honey? You know, sarcastic, down, talking down to her. You know, that's the banker voice when you hear that. There's also an emotional banker. Most people miss this one. It's, it's crucially important to understand the emotional banker. They're the one that keeps score of wrongs and rights in a relationship. So if she's ever made a mistake and gone out and put something on a credit card and you had to pay it off and there was some emotional pain to it, the emotional banker stands up and goes, she's back at it. She's doing the exact same thing she did last time when she screwed up your finances. And it's chiming in with not only do you have a banker, you have an emotional banker. Do you think there's any chance in hell you're going to buy the sofa now? Not if you've listened to those voices. You know, you know what I'm saying? So there's all kinds of characters. There's Rambo. When you've been harmed, Rambo shows up. He wants to kill somebody, right? <clears throat> don't, don't you laugh. There's also Xena, the warrior princess. She's just as strong, right? She wants to rip something up. Yeah. There's the bee woman. Huh? Yeah. You know, there's, there's some of those voices coming in, too. Uh, I've seen them firsthand. Uh, <clears throat> you know, here's a problem that most men have. And I, and I don't mean to paint with a broad brush, but most men have a Mr. Fix-It in it, right? Men tend to speak in facts and in, in logic. They, they tend to have their, their intellect over their emotions. And I, I know I'm being really dangerous here and I'm painting with broad brushes, but there's always exceptions to the rule. Women tend to talk more, to sound things out, and they tend to have a lot more emotion behind their, what they're saying. So when a man talks, I call that blue. When a woman talks, I call that pink. The problem is when a woman speaks like my wife, I'll use her as an example, since she's in the room, she can defend herself. When she speaks to me, she's speaking in pink, and what I'm hearing is I'm hearing a pink transmission, but I'm hearing it with blue. So she'll say something like, you know, uh, what do you want for, for, for dinner? I respond with the fact, I don't care, right? That means I don't care anything about it. It's back on you, whatever you want to deal with. And she'll say, well, I know you care about something. Would you prefer chicken or would you... You know, what she's saying is, I feel uncomfortable making the decision. If I stop and listen to the emotion behind what she's sharing, it's not what she's saying. There's emotion attached to it. If I miss the emotion and I keep giving her facts, before you know it, Mr. Fix-It comes out. Listen, I told you, I solved the problem. I want chicken. Make the chicken. Here's the chicken that I want. And, and now I'm talking down to her again with that tone. Can you see how quickly this can escalate? 
it becomes a real problem for you, right? That's right, you know, and there's been a number of nights where I get hot tongue and cold shoulder for dinner. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> if you're dealing with a parent, there's a son or a daughter, right? If you're a parent dealing with one of your kids, there's always, there's always an apparent there, you know? If there's a blended family, right? There's a step-parent who doesn't really have the rights to, you know, when it really comes down to brass tacks in a merged family very often, the, you know, and it gets really ugly very quickly where they say, listen, that's really not your kid. I'll take care of it. You're not the parent. You know, that's devastating to a relationship. Why do they make a statement like that? Because the voices in their head, they got defensive and boom, out it comes. And once you say something like that, you cannot get it back. It's really, really destructive. There's a, a military man, there's a veteran, there's a thief, a liar, there's the self-righteous man, oh, there's the victim. Oh, one of my favorites is the victim. You know, woe is me, they're always looking for, for sympathy, even though they've screwed up. But you wouldn't believe, oh, I, I, parked, uh, I, I parked my car and I thought I put enough money in the meter and then I ended up with the ticket. Woe is me. Well, you didn't read the damn sign, dummy. You know, you didn't bother to read the, the meter. You know, but what will come out will be the victim. We'll try to convince other people because the victim gangs up and to get other people. If I can get somebody else to agree, then I'm not the one who's at fault. I'm not the dumbass that didn't put enough money in the meter. You know, if you're willing to co-sign my stuff, we already talked about the co-signing. You know, it's sort of like that line, you know, it's, it's progress, not perfection. That's the victim voice. Well, it's progress, not perfection. Yeah, really? <laughs> Where's the spirituality in what you did? You know, let's look at it for, for the reality of it. All the way down to the, you know, uh, there's one of my favorites is near the bottom is Jack the Ripper, right? Jack the Ripper wants to cause the victim a, to painfully suffer, slower the better, without getting seen, you know? <clears throat> There's also the hitman. The hitman and Jack the Ripper are very similar. The hitman wants an instant kill, long range, and not get caught. Jack the Ripper wants to be right up close, to smell the blood, to see the suffering, you know? It's, it's verse, long distance versus close in combat. Um, and then there's, there's sarcastic Sam or sarcastic Samantha, you know, <clears throat> who, who wants to say something really sar sarcastic. Does anybody know what a sarcast is? You know, you know what a cat of nine tails is? They would take it and they would weave together leather and they'd have eight strips of leather, <clears throat> right? And they called it a cat of nine tails. And then the Romans being phenomenal torturers, they tied a little knot in one little piece of leather and they would slide on a little leather bead at the end of it and tie another knot. The leather bead is called a sarcast and its sole purpose is to tear flesh. So when they whip you with it, it digs into the flesh and really just rips the flesh. I used to think it was cute to be sarcastic. You know, in my family, that was like sport. We were always sarcastic with each other. You know, that's a dysfunctional family for you, you know. And then when I found out what a sarcast really was, Man, was I sad that I was engaging in that kind of behavior. Does everybody kind of get an idea of the, of, the, of the theater characters? Cool. So now, at this point, we're going to progress to, we need a volunteer. <clears throat> I need somebody who's willing to share columns one and two of the resentment, preferably somebody who's recently had a breakup, because those always make for great theater of the lie. <clears throat> and remember the goal. Our goal here is to identify the characters that we should be watching out for, to hear the voices that, that would be shared. Um, <clears throat> and we use the, share, the characters in the future to show us how we're off the beam, to try to get a know, an idea in the postmortem as a road sign to look so that we don't make the same mistake we've always made. So who's got a resentment? Yes, sir. Give me, give me column one and column two. Who, what do you got? Uh, got, got one of the, the horse. 
Who's, who's in column one? My wife. What is your wife's name? Uh, Marie. Marie is in column one. What did that bitch do to you? <laughs> well, it, 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 in all seriousness, that's how you write inventory. When I write inventory, man, I am caustic because that's the anger, the rage that I got going on is that bitch, I can't believe she did this to me. So what would be the first harm that she caused to you? She gaslighted you? Yeah. When? Uh, for a long time. And I didn't know what it was until I started working some program myself on it. Oh, does anybody know what gaslighting is? Yes. What is gaslighting? It's where you do stuff to somebody and then you say they're doing it to you and you make them feel totally batshit crazy because they're sitting there going, uh, no, I'm not. And then it, it's like this vicious cycle. They're forcing. Absolutely, it's manipulating and controlling. All right. So, from what you guys know, what are the voices? What are the characters that first show up? Who's the first character that shows up? It's the wife, right? Because we're dealing with a wife, the wife character, right? Is a wife supposed to treat a husband that way? Hell no. So the first character that shows up is is the husband saying, "Wait a minute, this wife, she shouldn't have done this to me." You know, I'm a good husband, right? Who's he telling that story to? No, you're in your head. What, who's the other character he's telling that story to? The judge. He's telling the judge. The judge says, I need some more supporting characters. So he goes to the jury. Who's in the jury? The victim. There we go. You Now you're getting it. The victim. What is the victim saying? Can you believe I haven't done anything like that? I am beyond reproach. Why? Why would she want to leave me? I'm the best thing that's ever happened to her, right? Right? You know, who else shows up? Don Juan. Don't After, I'm the best lay she's ever had. You know, I can't believe she's willing to walk away from me. Right? She was nothing before she met me. Who else is in there? Jack the Ripper. But we're not there yet. We're, you're jumping ahead. Right? What other voice is in there? The hitman, the hit right? But who calls the hitman? Rambo. Rambo calls the hitman. Well, maybe Rambo comes up and says, "Man, I want to bury her. Give me a shovel and some lime and a plastic bag, and we got. Let's go." But he knows. Wait a minute. I'm going to get in trouble if I do that. I might get caught. That's the wise man who shows up. He's like, "Whoa, whoa, calm down, calm down. We're not going to do that, right?" So he goes back to the jury, and the jury says, "Well, she's guilty for sure, without a doubt." Who can we get? Well, we can get Jack the Ripper if you want to be pointed up, up right up front and cause her some pain. We can also get the hitman. We're going to sit, the hitman will wait for years, just waiting and waiting and waiting until they can take that long distance shot. And it's even better if she never knows what's hit her. Boom, done. You know, and you don't tell a soul. You just kind of walk away going, <laughs> right? That's it. Well, he's, he's laughing too much. He's got a hitman. <laughs> <laughs> right? So you got the hitman, right? The hitman's going to lie in wait, right? Well, the victim is still pretty pissed, right? So the victim goes to the accountant and says, wait a minute, she's going to get half of my stuff? Well, legally, it's half of her stuff, but no, 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 we're not going to look at that. And then the emotional banker shows up and says, I've done this for her and I've done this for her. And that ungrateful bitch, now she's going to go ahead and do this to me? You see where this is going? 
and you got that chatter going on all at once. And you wonder why when you put your head on the pillow at night, you can't fall asleep and you're batshit crazy. You know, because you got all these voices in your head. Right? Does that make sense? Cool. Give me another resentment. Who's, one of you guys in the back had your hand up so fast yesterday it was like your head was spinning. Somebody had a resentment from yesterday. I know somebody who's got a resentment. I'll call on him too. He knows who he is. Are we going to make me call on Cody? Yeah? Okay, Cody, give me a resentment. All right. So, my sister. Your sister? Yeah, we'll do a real one. Your sister? What did that lovely child of God do to you? She abandons your child. Yeah. To give you guys some, some background, because I know Cody very well, yeah. his sister is one of us. Well, she's not in recovery yet, and she's got a child. And she abandoned the child, and Cody has been raising the child as if it's his own. And that, yes, bravo, give him a bravo. But that's not why he's doing it. He's doing it out of the love of God. And he's raising this child, and he's got children of his own, and then she all of a sudden meets a boy in, on an AA campus, boy meets a girl on an AA campus, and, and all of a sudden now she decides she wants to take the kid back, you know, even though for the last several years, she's been part of his family. So now the selfish sister is gonna rip this child who only knows Cody as dad her entire life out of that because she wants her child back. Do you think that's gonna raise up any of the characters? Right? So who do we got? We got a brother to start off with, right? The brother sounds off and says, this isn't right. I'm taking care of my sister's kid. She's irresponsible. Who else is in there? Come on, this is easy. The father. We got a father. He's been acting as a father for this person. He is her. She's the only thing she knows. He's the male role, that, the alpha male that's been raising her as his own daughter. Who else we got? We got the judge. Right? We got a jury. We got an executioner. Who else we got? We got a victim. Right? We have a Rambo who's out there going, I'm going to make her pay. This cannot be right. Right? We've got an attorney. We've got a spiritual man. We got a spiritual man. I'm supposed to be the spiritual man. I was doing this out of the love of my heart for my niece, and now she's getting ripped away, and so now he's got this huge emotional pain. Right? We also have a husband because his wife stepped up to the plate and has been raising her niece, who's not any blood relation to her at all, as her own daughter, right? And now the husband is arguing with the wife because she's like, I can't believe she's doing this to us. And it's starting to rip apart the marriage, right? This is real life stuff. And it's all happening in a nanosecond. The characters just start firing up, boom. You get a letter from the attorney that says she wants parental rights. And all of a sudden, Cody's on the phone going, you can't believe what just happened. That effing blankety blankety blank. What do I do here? What was my first response? Go to God. Got to get out of the itty-bitty shitty committee. In up there, you're behind enemy lines, and you will not survive. You go to God. You go back to your third step. You turn your will and your life, what every area of your life and everything you want, over to God. And one of the things, and I'm pretty sure he'll remember that I said this to him, I said, you know, that little kid is God's child. Right? And she's not going anywhere. She's still going to be in your life. So you can fight your sister and maybe not ever see this kid again if, if you lose in court. 
or you can go down the path and do the honorable thing, the next right thing, and feel the pain in this process, and you will find a jewel in the mud on the back, the back side. But the cost of finding the jewel in the mud is excruciatingly painful. And why am I crying? Because of what's up on my screen, the codependency in me. I'm living it with him. But I'm glad to do it, to walk down. We trudge the road to happy destiny together. And I'm going to get a front row seat to watch the miracle that's going to happen in his life. And it's already started to happen. You look at him, he's nodding his head. It's already started. One of the things, and I don't think I've mentioned it today, is, <clears throat> and it's a tool, it's not in the big book, but it's something I've started to get all my guys to do, is to create a miracles list. All the miracles that have occurred, when you sit down and you look back over your, your days of sobriety, you will start to see miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Write them down and put them in your big book. So when you get handed a big lump of life, and you're choking on it, and you cannot believe that there's an outcome to it, you could open up your big book and you look and say, wait a minute, God was here, and God was here, and he was here, and he proved it here, and he proved it here. And the next thing you know, you're going to be like, wow, this is just another miracle. I just haven't wait to see what it's, what it's going to be. It takes the pain and the fear away of walking through the fire. That's how you make a sword, you know. Take some iron ore and you stick it in a fire. And you get it hotter than hell. And then you take it out and you stick it up on an anvil and you beat the crap of it out of it with a hammer. And you stick it back in the fire, and you put it back on the anvil, you stick it back in the fire, you put it back on the anvil, then you stick it in a bucket of water and cool it off really quickly, and then back and back and back and back. And when you're done, you have a spiritual weapon of war. You got a sword that can defend almost anything that comes at it. But the process of getting the sword requires that cycle in the fire, out of the fire, getting the crap beat out of it. If you want to be the weapon to advance God's kingdom. And trust me, it's well worth the work. Thank you, Cody. Any questions on this? You happy, Jer? <laughs> I, have plan, but I, I, will, I will mention one thing. Come on up here and speak so you get it on the tape. Thanks, Dave. Uh, the one thing that I want to mention is that these, these things that Dave's talking about, you can hear about them from now on, but you can't know them unless you have the experience of them yourselves. It's, uh, you know, Mark used to tell the story about the smell of a rose. Mm -hmm. You cannot know the smell of a rose if you do not have the ability to, the, the sense of smell. You know, and uh, you've, you've got to, uh, you got to have the experience yourself. Absolutely. Amen. <clears throat> so how do you use the characters? Like I said, when you've had an event in your life, you go back when the dust settles and you pull it apart. And you're going to need a spiritual guide when you do it because you can't see it. Somebody else can help you see it. You can start to pick up some of the characters, but you need to bounce it off somebody else. Say, Am I seeing this correct? And, and they will help you with the process because we can see it in each other, but we can't see it in ourselves. And once you've learned a piece of spiritual truth, then you've got to get a vision and say, well, the next time something like this happens and I hear Rambo in my head, what do I need to do? And you can apply what you've learned. So instead of being Rambo, I go to God, I pray, and I see myself going to that person and thanking them for teaching me a lesson. 
you want to freak somebody out when you, they know they've been pushing on your button and you reacted and literally 30 seconds later you're like, hey man, thank you for that. And you don't say what it is, you're just like, hey, thanks for that. And you're calm and you're peaceful and they're like, what in the hell was that? I know that person should be screaming at me and they're now smiling and they're walking away going and thanking me. It boggles their mind. It's wonderfully fun to do. But, but that's sarcastic Sam that just said that. <laughs> cool. So let's look at some inventory. All right. Back to the short form. So I fill out column one. I fill out column two. I fill out column three. You notice there's a little column right there that's called forgiveness prayer. We talked about it. It's a 12-area prayer. Oops, back one. There's the 12-area prayer. And so these are the actual prayers that I wrote. All right. <clears throat> Father God, please help show me how to tolerate when her addiction hurts others, especially Chuck and Chuck. Help me to tolerate both her selfishness and her sickness. Help me to have pity on her, knowing that I too have been that sick in the past. Give me patience whenever I deal with anything surrounding the situation. Help me to cheerfully be of assistance to them and have a positive attitude towards the situation. God, help me to be a friend without condemnation and heart judgment. Grace me with discernment to help me assist them wherever I am able. Keep me from anger, Lord, and help me to constantly remember that your will, not mine, be done. Help me to be of service while keeping me from any possible retaliation or anger. Help me not to argue either with Chuck or with regard to this situation. Simply help me be a kind and helpful servant as I attempt to be a channel of your peace. And Father, please grace me with a tolerant view of Help me to see her as your sick daughter in need of healing, not as a selfish, toxic junkie. Help me to keep it in forefront in my mind that I too was once like her and that your boundless and endless grace and love is available to all who earnestly seek you. I ask this prayer in your precious son Jesus' name. Amen. I once was lost and now am found. I've been there doing the same thing. Who the hell am I to judge anybody else because of their disease? God's grace has lifted me out of that, and I'm one of the luckiest people on the planet because I have him in my life. I'm a lucky, lucky guy. I couldn't have seen column four had I not written that prayer and forgiven her completely. That's part of the process. Once I had forgiven her, then and only then could I see it truly clearly for what did I own in this action? Where was my selfishness, my dishonesty, my seeking, and my fear? Right? Remember the 12-part prayer? I even point out the 12 different parts for you. I numbered them so you can see where they, where they fit into that prayer because it's in my own words. It's not like you see in the big book right off the, sh off the shelf, you know, but they're all 12 are in there, right? Uh, Boom. The next one on the list is a principle, right? It's a principle of codependency. With a principle, you don't have to write a forgiveness prayer, right? Unless there's somebody specific. Like if, you, if the principle is uh, overtaxation and it's because you got audited by the IRS and John Jones was the IRS auditor and you thought he was taking advantage of you, you can write about the institution, the IRS, and you wouldn't have to write a, a forgiveness prayer because that's an institution. Or you could write of the principle of, of overtaxation, but you're really pissed at John Jones, the guy who works for the IRS. In that situation, 
even though the principle is over taxation, I would write a forgiveness prayer for John Jones because even though my anger is at the high tax rate I'm having to pay, and it's part of being a, a, in a democracy, you've got to pay your taxes, I still would write a forgiveness prayer to forgive John Jones who had to represent the IRS you know, in taxing me. Does that make sense? So sometimes, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but mostly, most of the time with a principal or an institution, you don't have to write a forgiveness prayer unless there's somebody in the institution. You know, cops comes up a lot. You know, somebody's pissed off at the cops. Well, I got a DWI and I'm, I'm pissed. I hate cops. And I'm like, okay, well, I think you're probably pissed at the cop, you know, Officer Smith, who gave you the DWI. You know, let's write about, you can write about the institution of the police force, but let's write a forgiveness prayer for Officer Smith since he was just doing his job. Does that make sense? Cool. All right. Once again, uh, the last one was here, was my son. Here's the forgiveness prayer I wrote for my son. Lord, I come before you to ask of tolerance of Noah when he acts selfishly and inconsiderate. Help me not to take offense towards his actions. Help me, Father, to have pity on him because he really can't help himself. Grace me with your patience and endurance as I overlook his behavior. Help me, help me to cheerfully react toward him with love and grace. Allow me to always be friendly and considerate in my interactions with him. God, I know that you grace me as his earthly father to love him unconditionally and to always be helpful towards him. Father, remove from me all anger and wrath toward Noah and keep me ever mindful that your will, not mine, be done in all situations. Therefore, help me, Father. Help me be an expression and an example of your fatherhood. Protect me from retaliation and help me not to withhold my affections towards him. Help me not to argue. Rather, help me lead him by my kindly example. Father God, open my eyes of my heart and help me to see him as you see him, to love him as you love him, to pro provide and protect him as you would, and to lovingly teach him as you are teaching me. Amen. That's a prayer of freedom right there. It freed me up to be able to love my son the way I should be loving my son. And he went from almost instantly from being a pain in my ass, is what the voice was telling me, he's a pain in your ass, you know, to he's a loving child and God, he's God's gift to you. God gave you, you're the only, you're his father on this earth. He can only go to you as his father. Love him the way that God loved you. See the shift? That is complete and total freedom. It's God's grace. It's a gift. Don't miss it. You know, it sucks writing the prayer, but the funny thing about writing forgiveness prayers at least my experience is there's magic between by the time the thought leaves my head, it goes through my heart before it comes out my arm. And what comes out on the paper, sometimes I just go, man, you wrote that? That's beautiful. And about halfway through the prayer, I'm like, why am I writing this prayer? Because the magic has already happened. The forgiveness has already happened under my, into my heart. But I finished the prayer anyway because my work's not finished. I got to go look at column four. There's the 12 areas in that prayer, all highlighted. Now I get to column four, right? With, when she hurts Chuck, where's my selfishness? Not wanting to watch my friend get hurt. That's selfish of me, because he's my friend. I don't want to, I want to control life. That's not what, I didn't get a vote, but I was still trying to have a vote. What am I seeking? I'm seeking power, control, and authority. I call that the triple crown. You notice I have a little parenthesis up there, TC. I only wrote power, control, and authority for you guys. Because it happens so often in my things, I just write TC, because I know that that's power, control, and authority. It's in almost every single one of my, my uh, resentments. Um, and T is for triple crown, yeah. 
the authority piece is if it has to do with somebody else. If you're angry at yourself, I don't need authority because I have authority. God gave you free will, right? But it's when I want somebody else's actions to change, so I'm trying to get authority over them to make, to have control to be able to make them change the way I want them to change. Does that make sense? Uh, and I also want serenity. I was looking for serenity. Where am I dishonest? I'm not in charge. She's an addict and addicts hurt people. Who was I lying to? God, myself, Chuck, and anybody that would listen. You know, I have a steel on steel group and one of the guys called me from steel on steel and I was like, you can't believe what's going on. You know, that's inappropriate. You know, uh, <clears throat> where am I frightened? I'm afraid of being powerless, out of control, no authority, no serenity, and those I love getting hurt. There's two fears that sound very similar. One is hurting those I love, and the other one's those I love being hurt. It all depends who's doing the hurting. If I'm hurting them, like I was afraid of hurting my son Noah by withholding my, my love from him because I thought he was a pain in the ass, then that would be hurting those I love. You know, If I'm defenseless, if somebody else is attacking my kid, like the college, I thought the, some, one of the counselors was picking on him at school or a professor was picking on him, then it would be those I love being hurt because I can't protect him. I can't defend him. He's a grown-ass man. You know, he's 21 years old. So that's not my job to step into that role, but it would still be one of the fears that would be triggered in me. Does that make sense, the difference of those? Very common fears for me that show up in my inventory. All right? So I've written my four-column inventory, right? That's what I call the short form. So I write it out. I do it for all four people. So what do you do with the fears, right? We write a resentment inventory. The fourth step is really five separate inventories. There is a resentment inventory, a fear inventory, a sex inventory, a sex ideal inventory, and a harms done to others inventory, right out of the book. So you write your resentment inventory, you go all the way through column four, question four is where was I frightened? Those fears become the fear inventory. You take them off and you put them in the fear inventory, right? And from page 68 it says, we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. We reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper. So I'm going to have another piece of paper, right? I take it off the short form and I'm going to put it on a fear inventory form. Even though we had no connection and resentment with them. Why did he write that line? Even though we had no connection and resentment with them. We just got done writing every fear that's associated to resentment. You just got done running your resentment inventory. Now I'm looking for any other fear that didn't end up on that resentment inventory. Afraid of heights, afraid of spiders, afraid of clowns, afraid of ghosts, afraid of... Uh, you know, I don't know, whatever, whatever your fears are, you know, whatever that happens to be, then you add those fear to it. Now you get a complete list of fears. Oops. That is a fear inventory, right? This is what I came up with. All right. <clears throat> there's one thing that is not out of the big book and it's the second column under column one. There's two columns. It says fear and opposite fear. <clears throat> one time I was writing inventory and I had a fear of being loved and in the same inventory, I had a fear of being unloved. I'm like, wait a minute, how can I have the same, two different sides of the same coin? And since every one of my character defects is triggered by a fear, the one thing I don't want to do is miss a fear. So it's just kind of a, my own personal technique for coming to a shortcut. So I write all my fears, I put them down there, and then I just go down there and I go, did I miss anything? Is, am I also afraid of the opposite fear, right? I'm afraid of not having money, right? It shows up a lot. It comes out in my ears, no dollar sign. I write dollar sign, right? That means no money. Well, am I also afraid of having money? Most people will say no. But anybody that's ever had a lot of money, you know, the average guy that hits the lottery is bankrupt in less than seven years. Having a lot of money can really ruin your life. It can screw things up. 
because it's a source of power and you're not relying on God, right? So for some people, having money is dangerous. Some people not having money is dangerous. So it all depends. You can go down and look through it. I already talked about being loved and being unloved. So you look through these fears. Is there, am I afraid of the fear? Am I, but am I also afraid of the opposite fear? And then the tool that the book gave us was, right, we ask ourselves why we had them. You'll notice what I put in column two, right? Why I'm afraid. And my goal is to boil it down to the root fear. And people always ask me what I mean by that. Oops, I just kicked my wire. What I mean by that is, let's say you have a tree. I always like the tree analogy. Let's say you've got 30,000 fears. They're like leaves on a tree, right? I can write about 30,000 fears individually. This guy does not want to write about 30,000 fears. I'm sorry, that's too much work. But if I cut a branch, I might cut off 1,000 fears or 10,000 fears in one branch, right? If I cut the root, I kill the entire tree and kill all 30,000 fears. Bill Wilson had the majesty to understand this. This is brilliant. So he said, boil it down. So I did. So here's what I came up with for my inventory. In the left-hand column, I had powerless, out of control, no authority. Well, on that one, I also had the opposite fear. I'm afraid of having authority, because if I have authority in the situation, then I got to take responsibility for the situation. I don't want that responsibility. I want to be a Sunday morning quarterback and give my opinion without having to do any work, right? <clears throat> Inaction. I was afraid of not taking action because Charlie's life was on the line. But I'm also afraid of calling CPS because if I call CPS, then I could have done a harm to somebody that used, I used to be one of my sponsees. And so now I'm kind of torn. I know inside information that nobody else knows. Can I honestly bring that to CPS? So I was in this quandary going, what do I do here? Luckily for me, I didn't have to do it. The cops, when they showed up, they reported him to CPS. And then when he got to the hospital, the hospital reported him to CPS. So they took it right out of my hand. I didn't have to go down that path, right? Down at Serenity, I said, I'm afraid of not having Serenity, but I'm also afraid of chaos. It's something very specific. It triggered, it got my mind thinking. I'm like, you know what? Not being peaceful and serene is one thing, but when there's chaos, I'm also afraid of that. I don't like to lose my serenity where I have this low-grade agitation, but what I really don't like is when there's chaos going on and I don't have the authority to step in and fix it because that's my job. I will fix chaos all day long, but if I don't have the authority to fix chaos, get me the hell out of there. I don't want anything to do with it. That's like I hate to go to sporting events. I do not go to sporting events because I hate massive crowds of dumb people. You know, <clears throat> and there's no order and everybody's doing their own thing. You know, that's how you get stampedes and that sort of stuff. It drives me crazy because it's chaos and I don't have any authority to make them do. And I, obviously I know best. So I just don't go to sporting events. I don't go to concerts, big, huge concerts like that. I go to these little venues where there's only, you know, a couple thousand people that I'll go to those. But I don't like the big crowds at all. That's it. Dropkick Murphys. Amen. So. This is what, which, what you do. So I take the fear and then I start asking myself, why am I afraid? Why am I afraid of perilousness? Because I can't go with what I want. Then you ask yourself this question. Why are you afraid of not getting what you want? Because that's frustrating. Well, why are you afraid of being frustrated? Because I can't change it. Well, why are you afraid of not being able to change it? Because it's not what I want. Oh, wait a minute, I already said that. So now I get down to, because I can't change it is being another way of saying I'm out of control. You see how I kept asking until I couldn't answer the question or I gave me the same answer again? 
I took that fear and worked it down, and the root fear was being out of control. So being out of control goes into the far right-hand column. That's a root fear for me. Does that make sense? You see how I got there? So whatever fear, I don't care what it is. Somebody give me a fear. Fire. Fear of fire. Why are you afraid of fire? Because you're afraid of losing everything. Why would you be afraid of losing everything again? Because you've been burned, right? So why are you afraid of being burned? Because it's painful. Why are you afraid of pain? Why are you afraid of growth? Because there's work. Why are you afraid of work? Because there's pain. We're back to pain. So pain would be the root fear. See how we did that? For fire. Who would have thought fire equals pain? Well, what you guys don't know is he's a brush business, and he was working on the brush, and he poured some gasoline at the top of the brush. The fumes went down through the brush and rolled over to where the hot muffler on the chainsaw was, and it lit him up like a Christmas tree. And he spent a lot of time with skin grafts and everything else. He's a walking miracle. Now, I know that story. You know, you guys may not know that story. So for him, fire means pain, excruciating pain, right? Make sense? See how, everybody understand how you boil down fears? Cool, we can move on to the next inventory. Well, once you have a list of root fears, now we gotta get rid of the fears. On page 68, colon three, the book says, we never apologize to anyone for depending on our creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality the way of weakness. Paradoxically, is the way of strength. The verdict of the, age, uh, of the ages is that faith means courage. All men of faith have courage, they trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let him demonstrate through us what he can do. Who's doing the work? God, not us, right? We ask him. Remember I said anytime you see the word ask, you put a prayer on it. This is the fear prayer right here. It's a tool, right? I call it the fear tool. It's a conditional tool. There's two pieces to it. Let's see if we can find them. Most people only ever do the first half. We ask God to remove our fear. And I hear it all the time in meetings. Well, I got this fear of CPS coming to take my kid away. I'm like, okay, what did you do about it? Well, I asked God to remove it, but I still have the fear. I'm like, well, did you do the other half of the tool? And they go, what's the other half of the tool? And direct my attention to what he would have me be. Not what he would have me do. What would he have me be? When I'm feeling afraid that CPS is going to come take my kid away, what does God want me to be? He wants me to be trusting. He wants me to be reliant. He wants me to be faithful. He wants me to be courageous. He wants me to be strong. Can you see the difference? Now I say, God, take this fear. It's yours. And I can focus my attention on being the things I know God wants me to be. I'm no longer in the problem. I'm now in the solution. It's a masterful tool for your toolbox. It's wonderful. This is a, my real life fear card. All those fears, there was eight of them in the, in the far right-hand column. I bowled them down and I wrote out what God wants me to be when I'm feeling those. <clears throat> I make fear cards and I will print them out on cardstock. You notice I'm anal, I have, the fears are bad, so they're in red. What God wants me to be is good, so it's in green. And I put them, I'll have one in my car, I have one in my big book, I'll have one in my suitcase, I have them all over the place. So I'm going through life, right? I get my morning prayers, I'm, I'm centered, I'm plugged in, my vacuum cleaner's running, I, I got my power. And I go out and I start my day and all of a sudden, boom, I get that low grade, restless, irritable, discontent feeling, I feel the tension in my chest, uh, you know, everybody on the road suddenly is a, is a, a jackass. And <clears throat> I wake up to the fact that I'm off the spiritual beam and I slam on the brakes and I go, okay, 
what am I, what's going on? I know I'm afraid, but what is it? And I can't quite put my finger on what it is. So I whip out my fear card and I go, oh, I'm feeling two, four, and six. So I go right to prayer. God, please remove two, four, and six. And I look over and see what God wants me to be when I'm feeling two, four, and six. And I meditate and see myself doing the things that God wants me to be right here, right now. I don't need to run to an AA meeting. I don't need to call my sponsor. I've already done the spiritual work and I've got the tool in my hip pocket. And now I'm, boom, I'm in the solution. I've gone to God. I've replugged in my vacuum cleaner. I've got my source of power. And now I'm going out to make the world a better place. Really powerful stuff. It's amazing how well it works. Oh man, now about sex. Our next inventory. You know, couldn't imagine that it was, how much time? 10 minutes. 10 minutes, cool. <clears throat> I think we can have 10. It doesn't normally take us 10 minutes to cover. Uh, well, never mind, it's a different <laughs> subject. <laughs> uh, uh. I was thinking about the conference. I don't know, you dirty minds, what you were thinking about. <clears throat> we don't want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all had sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? We reviewed our own conduct over the years past. And then there's nine questions. Where, where had we been? Not had we been. Where had we been? Selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt to be unjustifiably aroused? Jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. Once again, it's on paper. All of our inventories are written. I went into so many people that do inventory in their head, and I'm like, what are you doing? It's not Alcoholics Anonymous. There's magic of pen and paper. When you put it on paper, you can't take it back. You can't change your mind about it. You've got to own what you put down there. And like I said, there's that filtering process out of your head, through your heart, and what comes out your arm is amazingly truthful. You know, it, painfully so sometimes. So what does a fear inventory look like? Boom, there's the nine questions right there. All right? Way cool. Excuse me, sex inventory. Yes, I say, what did I say? Something else. Fear inventory. All right. Once we have the sex inventory, we've written the answers to those nine questions. The next in inventory that we're supposed to do is we're supposed to create a sane and sound sex ideal. And it says it right on 69.2. It says, in this way, we try to, to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. We subject each relation to this ship to this test. Was it selfish or not? We asked God. What does that mean? Another prayer, right? We ask God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them. We remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be spised or loathed. Whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow towards it. We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided that we do not bring still more harm in doing so. In other words, we treat sex as with any other problem. In meditation, we ask God, another prayer, what we should do about each specific matter. The right answers will come if we want it. God alone can judge our sex situation. Then from page 70, colon 2, says, To sum up about sex, we earnestly pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity and for strength to do the right thing. If sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. This takes us out of ourselves. This quiets the imperious urge when to yield would mean heartache. All right? I run into more people and I say, well, did you write a sex ideal? And they go, what the hell is that? I mean, how many times do I read the word ideal in there? It's all over in our big book, right? There's a reason why we wrote the sex inventory and answered those nine questions. It's to help us create an ideal. 
if doing something in a relationship you've already paid the price for, you've already destroyed, like your divorce relationship, you wrote about that and you looked at all these negative things that occurred, if you don't look at what the opposite, what should you have done instead, you're going to repeat the same. Let's learn. You've already paid the price, right? If there was something good in the relationship, that would be good in any relationship. It transitions straight across onto a sex ideal. Because if it was good in that relationship, it'll be good in this relationship. Does that make sense? Right? It's not brain surgery, but so many people don't want to do it. This is the form I created for the, <clears throat> for the sex inventory. In order to help me write an ideal, I've added some colored things that aren't out of the big book. It's just Dave's experience at the top. How did you meet? Was it love at first sight? And how long did you date before you started having sex? Because in my life, before I was married, I started seeing a trend. I was always into one night stands. I, my goal was only to meet the girl as quick, get into her knickers as quick as I could and be gone. I had that MO, you know? So I didn't realize that was a trend until I started writing this. Then you notice in green, it says, what were some of the good things about the relationship? If it was good in one, it's good in another. And the next one is, what were some of the bad things? Be specific, right? If it was bad in the relationship, <clears throat> for me, before I met my wife, one of the things that came out from these, idea, these inventories was having sex as quick as possible was always a train wreck. It never was good in the relationship. So that's not what I should do. What should I do then? So my, what I, my ideal read was someone with whom I won't have sex with right away. I just reversed it and said, okay, if that's bad, what would be better? This would be a better, you know, I was learning from my mistakes. Does that make sense? You know, if not having anything in common ended up in a train wreck because you felt alone and they never wanted to do anything that was you considered fun, well, your ideal should read someone with whom I have something in common. We have common interests. We have things we can do together because we enjoy each other's company doing the same, same type of task. Does that make sense? Way cool. Boom. Uh, I don't know. That's a duplicate slide. We already covered that. Here's an actual copy of an old sex ideal of mine. Some people don't know what they look like. You know, This one ha happened to have 12 bullets on it. It's probably 25 or 30 years old. My current sex ideal has 21 bullets on it. This one had, has half that, 12 bullets. <clears throat> and as I told you, it's not in the big book, but one of the things that I do is I write my ideal... And it's literally between me and God. I don't write it thinking about my wife. I think about what is it that I'm supposed to be bringing to a relationship? What do, I, what do I expect from a relationship? What do I think God wants me to do in a relationship? What should my role be in the relationship? And I write about it. Then I bring it to my wife and I say, honey, this is the man I'm trying to be. And I give her an idea of the goal that I'm shooting towards. And then I go back three months later and I say, how am I doing? And trust me, guys, do not do that if you don't want to find out. They will tell you, you know, you know. Uh, but let me tell you, it will turbocharge your relationship. Because they'll say, you know what, you're doing great in all these other areas. But this one thing right here, you said this, I ain't feeling that. You're failing on that area. You're like, oh, well, thank you for your feedback. I appreciate it. Now you can retweak your visions and, and try, to, try to, to, to figure out how to, how to become a better person. They're helping you. It's wonderful. And it bonds you together. You know, transparency, intimacy has nothing to do with sex. Into me, see. When I bring that to her, she gets to see inside my spirituality who I'm trying to be for God. Critically important. I'll say that again. It's critical. If you're in a relationship, you need intimacy. Into me, see. We all hold that wall up. We're masters of it. 
we got to let the wall down, let somebody else in. It might as well be your lover, your best friend, your, and your, your spouse. They're all the same creature, you know? And if it's God-centered, there's nothing cooler in the entire planet than letting somebody else inside the wall. And when they treat it with care and concern and kindness, and you, your relationship just blossoms. It's wonderful. Last inventory. It's the harm done to other inventory, right? <clears throat> we've written about resentment. We've written about fear. We've written about sex. Well, let's say I rob a gas station. You know, I show up at a gas station, the attendant's in the back room. I walk in and there's the register sitting right there and the cash drawer is open. <clears throat> I'm not angry at the, at, the, at the guy. I'm not afraid. I didn't have sex with him, but I reach over the counter and I grab a handful of bills and I walk out and get in my car. Did I hurt him? Damn right I harmed him, right? What inventory does he go on? He goes on the harms done to others inventory. On page 70, colon three, it says, we have been thorough about our personal inventory. We've written down a lot. By now, we've written several pages of sheets, right? We've listed and analyzed our resentments. We have come to comprehend their futility and their fatality. We have commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies. How do we get it towards our enemies? By writing forgiveness prayers. Critically important. For we look on them as sick people. We have listed the people we have hurt by our conduct and are willing to straighten out the past. This is the harms done to others inventory. It's one sentence. It's really easy to miss. If they didn't fit on any other inventory, but you still harm somebody, we listed the people we have hurt by our conduct. You write them on the harms done to others list. It's the catch-all. When you've done that, you've done all the harms you've created. You've got it all, but it's on all these different inventories. So when we get to our eight step list, all we're gonna do is take all these harms from all these different inventories, and move them onto one list. Who was it and what did I do to hurt them? Boom, there's your eight step list. It says in the eight step, we'll get there, it says we made it when we wrote our fourth step. That's what they're talking about. Cool. Boom. Next thing we're gonna talk about is the fifth step. We're gonna do that after a break. Come back in uh, half past. Yeah, it's quarter after now? Yeah.